of another story, but I'm Dave Bostrom, the student ministries pastor here at Lakewood, and uh, I'm going to move out of the Psalms, as Pastor Brian has been, and then I'm going to come to probably a passage that's fairly familiar to many of you, um, is the uh, story of Joshua and the Israelites as they um, have this major battle, or we could just say God pretty much just won it for them at Jericho. But I want you to kind of be thinking as I do this to maybe take some notes in your hot sheet or just maybe some things that you weren't aware of. I'm hoping that this will be an opportunity for you to kind of maybe learn some new things uh, that maybe you um, missed when you were in Sunday school um, sometime back or as you've read through the Bible. Um, I also want to tell you this story, and I did have permission for my wife to share it. She was a swimmer in high school, and, and uh, one of the she was talking, she told me about this one meet that she had had, and it was against a number of schools, but there was one school they had never beaten. You know, every, every year they would usually come in second place to them. And so in this meet, though, it came down to the last race that they were going to do, and it was the 4 by 100 freestyle. And so uh, Tammy was going to be the anchor, so she's the fourth swimmer for her team, as, and that means that she's going to be up against the best swimmers from the other uh, teams as well. And so I remember her saying that she'd tell her teammates, just don't be in last place when I go in the pool. Um, but what happened was is the whistle goes, they jump in, the race goes. One, you know, And it's a 25-meter pool, so there's four laps that they need to complete. Well, the first lap goes, the second, or the second swimmer goes, and before you know it, Tammy is about to dive in the pool when the team they need to beat is touching the 25 meters ahead of them. And you're like, no shot, no shot. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And Tammy dives in the pool. If you know anything about her, she's pretty tenacious that way. She's a competitor, and she gets in there and swims her heart out. And as the other swimmers begin to slow, you notice she's gaining ground. She's getting closer and closer. And on that last lap, She's not concentrating on that person. She's looking at that wall. I got to touch that wall. And focuses in on that and races as fast as you can. And you see the other swimmers slowing down. And she just keeps going and going. Fingertips. She wins the race. And you go, yeah, high school swim meet. But you know what? I think a lot of us get into situations where we feel as though we have odds against us that there's just no way we're going to overcome it. And see, we've got a choice to make at this point. Are we just going to kind of give in, maybe just give enough to finish? Second place is good enough. First loser, I'm good with that. Or am I just going to give it everything I've got, trust in my abilities, the things that God's given me, and move forward? Well, these are kind of two human stories of overcoming insurmountable odds. But this morning, I wanted to talk about the nation of Israel as they had to now look at Jericho. They had to figure out, what are we going to do? God has said we're going to go into the promised land, but yet there's a lot of stuff in our way. And it, it would have been easy to be, you know, thought, well, is there any way we can go around that river? Is there any way that we can kind of just go by that city and not have to worry about it? And so we get to, so I want to pick up the story. I think if we don't set the scene for this, we sometimes will kind of lose track of maybe the significance that led up to it. 
See, at this time, Moses is leading the people, and uh, Moses dies. He's been uh, leading the nation, essentially, you know, for 80, um, for 80 years, or I mean for 40 years, and he is trying, you know, to do these things, but we see that Moses isn't even going to be allowed into the promised land either because he struck the rock. You can see that in Numbers. And we see that this nation that left Egypt have all died as well. And it's only their offspring, the next generation, that is now here. The torch is being passed from Moses to Joshua. Joshua is what they would, you know, it was a good, clean pass of the baton of leadership. And so here you have this picture of the baton being passed. This next generation is ready to go into the promised land. We hope. Because if you think of the Israelites in the past, it was always about whining and complaining and groaning and not trusting God and deciding they should do things their own way. Had this next generation learned anything from that? Well, Joshua had a good mentor in Moses. He learned a lot from him. And we see that they, they are prepared to enter the promised land. They are kind of trying to figure out, okay, we know we've got to get over there. How are we going to do this? Joshua knows that he's got to trust God. So Joshua, in his first act as kind of commander-in-chief, as the military leader, as well as the leader of the Israelites, he sends spies into the land. And he sends them in. And I don't know if these spies were just not very good because they were found out. But what were they supposed to do? Two things, two things. One, they were to kind of get a lay of the land. What was around? What was kind of, how did things look? Bring back a report about that. But then also, they needed to get into the city and take a look, find out what was going on in there. And so here you have this picture of these spies in here. The king of Jericho at that time finds out that there's spies in there. So we don't know exactly how that happened, but... They know Rahab has an idea where they may be. So Rahab, her name enters the picture or the story. She's a prostitute. She's got like an inn, a place where people would come and gather and then leave. I'll give a little description a little later when I describe Jericho where her house would have been. But see, at this point, Jericho or Rahab hides the spies. Even though they come and ask her, she hides and even lies. But we're not going to get into all of that this morning. And then allows them to escape. I mean, pretty incredible that she does this. Well, why does she hide the spies? It tells us in Joshua 2. I think we've got this one for on the screen here. And, sa- and, he, and she said to the man, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. That would be all those living in Jericho. And the fear of it has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. So now we're even looking at the land, all the area around them. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, okay, 40 years prior, before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Cheyenne and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. 
See, we see this picture that the inhabitants of Jericho are fearing for their lives. They're like, how? But, but they don't understand. How is it possible? We're in this fortified city. This might be a good time to explain Jericho to you. What is it? Because sometimes I think we lose sight. We, we get a picture of a veggie tale, you know, thing in our mind. But here's a picture of Jericho. Jericho was up on a hill. Jericho would have been a military garrison. So the purpose of it being there was basically to basically bring, or, you know, to force the way of the will of the people around them. And that you didn't mess with Jericho because they would just send people out to a particular area. It was fairly strategically located. It was just north of the Dead Sea and just a little bit off of the Jordan River. And so it's up on a hill. And so they show, this is actually a picture of the excavations of the actual Jericho city. Um, But you'll kind of see that it's up on a hill. And so if you're a military, you want to be, you want to have the high ground. It's easier to defend. And it's a lot harder if you're the one that has to attack. Jericho also would have been a walled city, but not just one wall. They had two walls. And it's really neat. If you go on, you can find a lot of information about this online. But they had two two city walls. One was the outside wall, and then they had kind of an area. It wasn't a moat. It was just another big hill with another hill after that, or a wall after that. They say that the wall was a minimum of six feet thick. Josephus actually in his talks about two chariots being able to go over it. So there's probably portions of this that were significantly bigger. It was at least 12 feet high at a minimum from the ground. But the other thing is it would have looked a lot bigger than that because, again, you're looking uphill. On top of that, there was a retaining wall. And this would have been a lot of smaller rocks and things like that. They would just continue to build it up. So it could have been anywhere from 16 to 20 feet each of these walls. That would be pretty imposing. Now, if you think of the uh, size of it, this is the thing. You know, those of you that are farmers, you totally get this. I say it's about six acres. I have no idea what six acres is, so I had to look it up. It's about five full football fields. That's the size. And you're like, what? seems like Jericho would have been bigger than that. Well, if you think about that and you spread that out right and put it up on the top of the hill, that's a pretty good size area. And so that's what's being commanded that, guys, you're going to go to Jericho and defeat this. I mean, that's hard to believe. Insurmountable. I mean, how are we going to do this? Well, I think at this point we see that Rahab hid those spies. The spies come back, give a report to Joshua, tell him here's what's going on. And we see that Rahab really, basically, she had just said, hey, save, uh, you know, save me when you guys come. And that's the deal that's struck. And you know, I thought, man, Rahab, why would she have trusted the spies so easily? But in that passage I read, it tells there was something she knew And it was probably from all the people bringing supplies to the city. It was probably all the people that that had heard rumors of things and said, whoa, okay, I don't know if we want to, maybe they'll go around us. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. Rahab probably could have got a pretty fancy reward. It would have been short-lived by the king of Jericho there. But she could have. But she risked her life and her family's life for hiding the spies and then later releasing them. Well, we're, then we're at this point where Israel is going to cross the Jordan River. 
I think this is a cool story because I think uh, when you look back, we go, we think of the Israelites going through the Red Sea and getting to the other side safely. Well, this is a new generation. They had not passed through the Red Sea. And so I think God uses the Jordan River as an example to remind them of what he had done for their forefathers, for their families. This river, the Jordan River at this time, flows south down to the Great Sea or the Salt Sea, I mean the Dead Sea, and what happens is, is it was at flood stage. And so what's happening is, is it's wider than normal, it's going harder than normal, and so all of a sudden, how are we going to cross this? We don't have bridges, we don't have these kind of things, we've got women and children, we've got cattle, we've got all these things, and we, how are we going to do it? And that's exactly where God wanted them to be. To say, you can't do this. And I think at this moment, this is where Joshua gets instructions from the Lord. And he says, okay, put the ark in there. And the water dried up, and they walked across dry land, the scripture says. I think this is the moment where really Joshua's leadership is solidified. We read in Joshua 3, 7, this, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So, you know, it wasn't Joshua that says, Hey, I'm a great leader, so pick me, Moses. No, God had raised up Joshua for this particular moment, this particular time in the life of the Israelites. So they crossed the Jordan. They're camping out. And at this time, as Joshua would, I'm sure, normally do, is he would wait to hear from the Lord. And he would wait. And he would pray. And he would wait. But he was not going to move those people until he knew that the Lord was going to move them. And it was his plan. And so we see that as this is taking place, Joshua is probably out praying multiple times, comes back, doesn't hear anything, says, nope, not going to do it. And then we find out in Joshua 5, he has this encounter. It's an unexpected one. He didn't obviously see it coming. And so I'm going to read that, Joshua 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell to his feet, fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? See, there's four things in your note sheets I've included in here. Josh, Lee, Josh just goes in and he boldly approaches. He sees somebody and he's like, he's got a sword. He's like, okay, let's go. What's up? And you're thinking, okay. But I I love that because it tells me that Joshua was a man of courage, a man of strength, a man of faith. He knew God's promise for him. He was not worried, hey, I'm going to die here, because he believes in so much that God was going to do what God said. He's going to bring them into the promised land and allow them to inhabit it. But then we see he quickly questions the visitor. Are you with us? Or you are enemies. 
And then we see kind of the change in the demeanor very quickly. That as soon as the commander of the Lord's army identifies himself, we see that Joshua falls on his face and worships. And he responds to God's holiness. I mean, that's just, I mean, to me, it's like, it wasn't, you know, here's a strong man, I'm ready to do battle, and before you know it, he's on the ground worshiping God because where he stands is holy ground, the passage tells us. You know, I think how many times do we have encounters, in a sense, in, with God in our life, and we, you know, just kind of want to do battle, are you with us, you know, and then God says, no, 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 I'm, I'm with you, let's, let's do this together. And do we worship? Do we worship? Do we fall to our face and say, okay, it's your holiness, it's your way? I don't know. Well, I love this next passage um, because uh, I want to read, uh, I'm going to go out of order here, but it's 1 Corinthians uh, 1.27. Mark read part of it. Uh, but I love this as we go into this next section. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. See, God has a different way about going or doing things. He's not going to do them maybe the traditional way that we think we would do it. He's going to do it his way. And when we trust him, the res- when we trust him with the results, it's usually exactly what he wants. So in Joshua 6, 1 through 5, this is what we read. And this is the battle plan. You know, this is the, and, and you know, I'm just thinking Joshua, once he gets this, it's like, I got to go back and tell the people this? This, okay, all right. But I'm going to trust you, God, because you told me it. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went in and none came out or came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you go for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up and in, everyone straight before him. You know, here's a plan that you go, okay, you've got 40,000 fighting men. Now, granted, they probably wouldn't have been what we would say the best and the brightest. It's what they had. The people at Jericho would have been trained, would have had probably the latest equipment. Israelites didn't have any of that. They didn't have any ramps or anything that would really provide them the necessary means to get in and over those walls without be just being plucked off one after another. But this is the plan. So what happens? Well, part one of the battle plan is, is each day they're going to go out and march around. So you've got the military men of valor, the men of war going out, marching with the Ark of the Covenant in the middle, with the priests in the middle, and then a rear guard of soldiers behind there. And they walk around once. 
there's an interesting note in there, and usually when it's added in there, there's a reason for that. And I don't know if I really know the reason. I would wager a guess that Joshua also gives this command, be silent. So the only ones doing anything were those that were going to blow the horn. That's it. And I'm just wondering if it's one of those things, you know how you're walking, and you just start talking about stuff. And then you kind of lose sight of what you're actually doing or where you're going, and you're like, what? how did I end up here? He wanted them, I believe, to be focused on their one specific task, and that's walking around and doing exactly what God had asked them to do. So then they do this for six days. They go back to camp each night. I just think it would have been interesting to get back to camp and one of those late night talks and a little fly in the tent wall there and what is Joshua doing? I mean, we're walking around this thing. Is this, you think this is going to work? I don't know if it's going to work. I mean, just the conversations you would probably imagine. Because I love putting myself into a story like that and saying, what would I have done? <laughs> I would have been going, okay, this is, seems just a little bizarre. But then the battle plan for day seven. Well, it looks a lot like the first six days, except you're going to go around six times. And that's when I really started to figure out, okay, wait, Jericho, if this thing is like five miles around, it's going to be like them doing a marathon in military gear, and I'm thinking, that's, that, that's going to be a lot of work. But I'm sure in the heat of the sun, they're going around, going around, going around, blowing the trumpets. No one speaks. You just have to imagine those in Jericho, their hearts we know we're melting away. And so as we see that, you, you sit there going, okay, what's going to happen? You know, we know the story, but they didn't. You know, they, they're told, yeah, the walls will come down, and what is that going to look like? Well, what happens then is those horns blow on that seventh time around, and as soon as they blow, then all the men yell to the Lord. They don't yell at the walls. You notice in the scripture it tells us they yell to the Lord. And then we see what happens in Joshua 6.20 here. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. Notice that. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all that was in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Now you're going, wow, why did they kill all those people? If you were to go back in history, this was a nation that had basically brought brutality and judgment. You know, God allowed these people, these Canaanites, to bring judgment for over 400 years onto the Israelites. And God's saying, it's your time now for judgment, Canaanites, for all that you've done to my people. But we also see this is a military garrison. So when those terminologies are used about, you know, everything being destroyed, it's really to say that nothing was left. But the only people that would have been in that city would have been primarily people that were the part of the military and those that supplied the military. It wasn't like a normal city that they just came upon that had men, women, children playing out in the park, you know, playing in the different areas, and then all of a sudden they come in and kill them. It wasn't a situation like that. But we see in Joshua 6.25, Rahab is mentioned. 
It says, But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So in the midst of all this chaos, Rahab is spared. It's interesting, too, that if you were, you know, the faith chapter in Hebrews 11, it's funny because you see a lot of different people mentioned. Moses is mentioned many times. And then all of a sudden you get to this in Hebrews 11.30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. I think it's neat because the Israelites were not known for being the best at following what they were supposed to be doing. But they're commended here in Hebrews 11 to saying they had great faith for an unorthodox plan, a battle plan that seemed to make no sense. So if we left the story right there, we'd be going, hey, this is, this is pretty good. You know, the fall, you know, they conquered it, they burned the city, and, and uh, everything is left ruined, and it looks like that picture I had up there earlier. It's not been rebuilt. And you go... All right, that's good. But I think we would have kind of missed a pretty important part of the story if that's all we took out of it. My last point kind of today is to talk about this idea that how God extends his grace and mercy to all those that place their faith in him. You know, I think oftentimes we... We, we can get into a story and, and maybe miss some of the significance of it um, or miss kind of a key point. But what I want you to see is that for over 1,400 years prior to Jesus even being on the scene, God is preparing his way for his chosen people of Israel as well as those that are not. In Ephesians 3, 6, this is what it says. This mystery is that the Gentiles, okay, non-Jews, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then in Acts 10, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God has opened the door for all people to come to him. So if you read the story of Jericho, you would go, I don't think I've ever taken that necessarily away from it. But here's a really kind of cool fact for those of you that like to dig into things a little further. Matthew 1, we look at the genealogy of Jesus, his lineage, where he came from. And in Matthew it says, and Solomon, the father of Boaz, by who? Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. You know, it's interesting in that passage, if you were to you, you look at that and you go, as I look through it, there's 42 genealogies. They're broken down in 14 generations. And in there, there's only four women mentioned. And in those few verses, there's three. And it's Uriah's wife, which would have been Bathsheba, and then the mother of Mary, or mother of Jesus, Mary. Why are they in there? Rahab, 
a Canaanite, Canaanite should have been destroyed. Her family should have never been around. They were to, de to destroy everything. Ruth, a Moabite, because of her devotion and love for God, God saves her. Do you look at how strategic they are in that lineage of who King David is? That would make them the great-grandmother and, great, and the grandma of King David. I mean, that's just cool to think about. But, you know, if I was to look at Jesus' family tree and compare it to mine, I think I might be a little embarrassed because you look at Jesus' these 42 <laughs> generations, you're going, okay, thieves, murderers, liars. It's like, I don't think I want to kind of be a part of that. I mean, deceivers. I mean, you just go through the list. But you know the cool thing is? These are all flawed people. All people that had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God used each and every one of them to prepare the way for his son Jesus, who was perfect. I mean, that's amazing in itself. I think if we miss the point that God had a plan that God was surprised by all these things. He's not. Why? Because in Romans 5 it says, but God shows his love to us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So before we even acted, before we were even born, God acted. God was doing his part and continues to this day because it says God shows. It's not in the past tense. It is in the current tense. It means he has been and continues to do so. So God's not surprised. But why would he do this? Well, we see in that passage, because he loves us. Well, then what? There's only one way. See, Jesus himself says in John 14, 6, that I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying all are welcome, but there is a particular path in which you must come. Into this world, that's not all that exciting. They're thinking, well, you know what, though? You know, Jesus, I'm sure there's other ways. No, Jesus has made it clear. You believe in me, or there is no eternity in heaven, and there is no relationship with me. But finally, in Ephesians 2, we read this in verses 4 through 5 and 8 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Remember, why did he do this? Because he loved us. Even when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of your works so that no one can boast. Well, what are our insurmountable odds? We have no hope without Christ. And until we place our trust in him, we will not be able to do anything. And our eternity is determined by what we think of Jesus and what we do with Jesus. Some of you I know are overwhelmed by just amazing things that have taken place. It's like, how could all of this happen to me? You're feeling like, I can't overcome this. And you're right, you can't. But there's good news to this. 
that when we place our trust in Christ and his way, just as it tells us in Proverbs 3, it tells us that we need to trust in him because when we trust in him, he will make our path straight. I mean, that's exciting to me to know that the more we trust him, the more he gives us guidance and direction. It's not always going to be easy. It's going to be tough stuff. It's going to seem insurmountable. His plan may seem crazy. It's like, what in the world? I can't do this. But yet, he uses the things of this world to confound it, to just go, um, I got a different way. Watch this. So he's faithful to pull us through, even the most overwhelming situations, because he loves us and he desires us. I guess my question to close is this. Will you trust God with your most difficult things in your life? Or maybe even, will you trust God with all the easy things in your life? Because, you know, sometimes the easy things, we just kind of then just go, oh, I don't need to worry about God right now. But do you trust him with the easy things? To make sure they're the right things? But let's do this. Let's not wait for a desperate time to come. Let's trust him with every area of our life because he will help us overcome and he will make us more than conquerors. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for this uh, story that I think tells us so much about what happens when we trust you. No matter how unorthodox the plan is, you are a faithful God that will do your will. So Lord, I pray that we would trust you. I pray that we'd also, when we are in the midst of these difficult situations or good situations, that we would remember that you are a God that loves us, that first loved us. You loved us so much that you sent your son for us. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us your love through your sacrifice on the cross. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for living in us and giving us the same power that took those walls of Jericho down. The same power that moves, can move mountains, that can still storms, lives in us. We thank you. And may we just trust you with everything in our life so that we can see you do incredible things. We pray this in your name. Amen.